0: Avi Brackman here with Truths, Jewish Wisdom for today. Thank you so much for joining. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, like, or leave a comment wherever you listen to the podcasts. Leave a review as well. That allows other people to also find this content. Thank you so much. Now let's get on to this episode. I am back talking about Lurianic Kabbalah. And today I'm going to focus on the Tzimtzum Harishon, the big contraction, the contraction of God's infinite light, and what the Ariza, through Rabbi Chaim Vital, in his book, The Eitz Chaim, says about it. Just to recap, I want to go through what we've discussed up till now, and that is, first and foremost, why God created the universe. And if we remember, it's because that which was in potential, God wanted to bring out into actuality. So, potentially, God had the ability to create the universe and to show his greatness. Prior to that, when he was just in his infinite light, in his RN Suf, he was not able to show in actuality his greatness. And he wanted that. Greatness and infinitude should be in actuality. And the only way he could do that was to create the universe. And that's why. He did that and then we discussed that you have the masculine and the feminine energy and the idea of god's desire for the universe is this idea that within the masculine there's a desire for feminine even if the feminine isn't actually there we then went on to discuss why in this particular moment in time did god create the universe the answer for that according to the behind Vital, is because in order for the physical world, Olam Hazai is what he calls it, this world to be created, there needed to be a sequence of events, a the hishtal shalot, from the very beginning, from God's infinite light, step by step, cause and effect until this world could be created. So all that had to happen first, and then this physical world could be created thereafter. And then you had the creation of the physical world. That, I pointed out, only really answers why the physical was created in this moment in time, but kicks up the question to a much higher level, which was why, in that moment in time, did God decide to want to create the universe? Why was there a moment in time, that it came upon his will in order to create the universe? And that really isn't answered directly. And in a sense, this is pretty typical of what we find in the Eitz Chaim, that these questions aren't answered directly, rather they're answered on a certain level, and really it pushes up the question higher, and we'll see that in an example that we give about the Tzimtzum. So we have why God created the world, why it happened in this moment in time, and now we move on to the question with regard to what were these worlds, and the answer which is given is, well, they were filled with these things called sefirot. Svirat we discussed in previous episode are these divine attributes. There are ten divine attributes, ten svirat. We're not going to go into the details of what these really are right here because we've discussed them previously, and we'll discuss them again in future episodes. But there is this idea of these ten svirat which inhabit all of the universes, including this physical universe. But in all the universes and all the Shalot, all the levels and all the emanations and the evolutions of these worlds that happened, cause and effect, cause and effect, they all contain these ten sefirot. Now we get on to the conversation about the great simtzum, the great contraction. Now I want to point out that within the Ariza through Rabbi Chaim Vital, all these concepts are brought up by asking a question about something. Now, if you look at it, really the Simtsuma Rishon, the great contraction, the primordial contraction that took place, that really also tries to answer a philosophical question. And we're gonna get to what that philosophical question is. But before we do that, I want to share what the frame is that Rabbi Chaim Vital himself explains the Simpson through. So he frames it with a particular question. And that question is not a philosophical question at all. The question is a textual question. A question related to the texts of the Zohar itself and the texts of the Sefer HaBahir. And it's related to the 10 Sefirot. So the 10 Sefirot are described in the Zohar and in the Sefer HaBahir in two different ways. In one way, they are described as being igulim, circles, and another way they're described as being yosher, which is straight lines. And the question is, well, what are they? Are they igulim, are they circles, or are they yosher, or are they stra- straight lines? Or in the Ashkenazic terminology, are they igulim or Yosha? And that is a, a question because from the texts themselves, from the passages in the Zohar, and in the Sefer Bahi, it seems like they could be both. So which one are they? And he uses this as a jumping off point to talk about the Tzimtzum. Let's talk a little bit about what the Igulim are and what the Yosher are. So according to the idea of the svirot being in Igulim, you have these concentric circles. And the first one would be Keter. And then within that, you have another circle, which would be Chochmah. And then within that you'd have another one called Bina, etc, etc, all the way down to Malchut, which would be in the middle Like an onion, one inside the other, inside the other, inside the other, just like you would imagine an onion to be So layered circles is what the ten Svirat are According to the view of Yosha, that the Svirat are straight lines They aren't in concentric circles, but they are set up in the form of a person with the center, the Chokmah and the Keter. So you think of crown on top, the chokhmah, and the Bina being in the head. And then all the way down should be the center line. And then you'd have the left line and then you'd have the right line. And they're set up a bit like this. You can see in the book there, you find the center line and then the right and the left line. So that is how it's set up with Yosha. So the question is, which one is it? Are they Igolim or are they Yosha? To answer that question, he gets into the Tsimtzum, the Great Contraction. So as an aside, I just want to point out that we discussed in previous episodes the conversation about whether the Zohar itself was written by Rebbe Shimbayuchai as an ancient text in the second century, or is it a text that came much later written by Moshe De Leon and perhaps his group of scholars in the 12th and 13th century. And the Arizal through Rebbe Chaim Bital, has a very clear view that it was written by Rishim Rebbe in the 2nd century. And it's interesting that when he talks about the Seifah Bahir, he says that the Seifah Bahir is meyuchas to Rabbi Nechuni Ben Akana. Meyuchas means that it is attributed to Rabbi Nechuni Ben Akana. Rebbe Ben Akana was also a 2nd century scholar. And this book, Sefer Bahir, was attributed to him. And there is a recognition in that, that he was attributed to him, but perhaps he never himself wrote the Sefer Bahir. That's why he uses the words it was miyuchas, it was attributed to Ben akana But when he talks about the Zohar, he doesn't talk about an attribution to Reb Shem Re'echai. Rather, that this was the writing of Reb Shem So obviously he's Aware that there's this concept of ancient books, which could be attributed to ancient authors Pseudopigraphy, but He doesn't think that the Zohar was just attributed to Rishon Meichai, but it was actually written by Rishon Meichai And I'll take that a step further Because in the Zohar we find these two views, it seems, of whether these Sefirot are concentric circles, are they Igulim or they're or they straight lines, and it seems like one could contradict the other, that he goes to great length to try and explain, actually, they both exist within each other, and they're both true, and the words which he uses, In other words, he says, and, and pick up your eyes and see how all the words of Rabbi Shimbah peace be upon him, are the words of the living God. And there is nothing mistaken about them whatsoever. And he explains how actually they fit in perfectly, where you can have both the Igulim, the concentric circles, and Yosha, and straight lines. And then, because of that, he gets into, to explain how they can both exist together, he launches into this whole idea of the Tsim of the Great Contraction. That's all to forestall any kind of thought that maybe there were two views in the Zohar and they weren't all written by one author, Rabbi Shimba Yechai. So it's interesting how he frames this whole idea of the Tzimtzum, the Great Contraction, as a way to show how the Zohar is all written by Rabbi Shimba Yechai, all one author, Rabbi Shimba Yechai, and nothing else. So that's how he frames the idea of the tzimtzum. Now, what I would argue is that the tzimtzum is really there to answer a philosophical question. But given that the Zohar was not a philosophical book and as a matter of fact, we argued in previous episodes based on scholarship that the Zohar itself was a reaction to people like Maimonides and the Guides perplexed and the philosophization of Judaism And because of that, the philosophization of Judaism, the Chakira which was used to explain Judaism, you had this great pushback and that was the Zohar So, obviously, philosophical questions are ne- never going to be the underpinning for explaining anything So if you want to explain something and bring in a new concept, it has to be based on some kind of question related to the text itself. So you have to understand that the Kabbalah, its frame of reference is the text of the Zohar. Its frame of reference isn't some philosophical question or some question that one might come up with on one's own outside of the texts. They all have to be inspired and motivated by something in the text itself. And in this case, the motivation for the Tzimtzum is something found within the text itself, which is this problem related to Igulim and Yosher. Are the of concentric circles or are they straight lines? Which one is it? Actually, they're both. And to explain that, we're going to use the Tzimtzum. But there is a philosophical question, which is also here. And one's got to believe that the author of the Eitz Chaim, Darizal, through Rebbe Chaim Vital, knew of these philosophical questions. And one of the ways in which I think there's proof that he knew of these philosophical questions is that he talks about it. When he discusses these concentric circles and how the walls were in concentric circles, he says that the universe according to astronomy were, and this was the astronomy of the time, were really these circles one inside the other. So that's how the galaxies were. You had these circles one inside the other, and if you look in Maimonides, where he talks about Kiddush Achodesh, the laws of the new month, he also describes the universe as such. And this was the science of the time that the galaxies were all one within the other, one within the other, one within the other, like an onion. So it kind of makes sense that when you're talking about the Svirat, when you talk about the different universes. In the spiritual sense, in the higher realms, they would use that as a model that things were in one inside the other, one inside the other, like an onion, these concentric circles, because that's what the astronomy of the time was as well. If you look at the words of Rabbi Chaim Vital in the Eitz Chaim, he actually says that Ad tmunas, mal ashab So, translate this until the picture of the walls of circles which surround this world, in other words, this physical world, as is found in the books of astronomy. In other words, he's aware of the books of astronomy. So he would also be aware of the other books of philosophy. So to say that this is also a philosophical argument, which underpins this, and they were aware of that, is to me clear, but the way they frame it is as a textual argument and not as a philosophical argument. And again, when one understands that this whole enterprise of Kabbalah was, in many ways, there to combat or in reaction to the philosophization of Judaism, one can understand why any philosophical argument is not going to be couched in philosophical questions, but much more in textual questions. So. Be that as may. Let's talk about what the Tsimtsum is and then we'll get to the philosophical question that the Tsimtsum is trying to answer. So, the Tsimtsum is as follows When God wanted to create the universe, (laughs) when it came upon His simple will to create the universe, because He wanted that His greatness should come from potential to actuality. What did he do? He took his light, he concentrated into one center point, and then he moved all the light into the sides till he created a circle and there was a empty circle, a vacuum. No more God's light in this circle. It was empty of God's light. And then he started to reinsert or reintroduce his light through something called a cuff. A cuff is a line. So he reintroduced a small amount of his light back into this empty space. So you had a contraction of the light to a center point. Then it was pushed from there outwards. So you end up with a circle, and it had to be a total circle. And now that circle had no divine light in it. And then he reintroduced his divine light. In a much more limited way through this thing called a curve, through this line from the top of the circle. And then within that, the walls started to be created until you had the physical world. That is what the Simpson is. Clearly, this also is answering a more philosophical question. And what is that question? Well, how. Did multiplicity come from the simple oneness of the divine? Think about it. If God is perfect, God is omnipotent, God is omnipresent, God is omniscient. In that case, you have God everywhere. There is no place which there is no divine. So how do you have other? How do you all of a sudden have a world? The whole idea of God creating the universe according to the Kabbalah is in order that he should show his greatness to another. God desired the feminine. Even when there was no So we had to create this idea of the feminine. So there had to be another. If God's everywhere, how do you have room for another? How do you end up with all these different universes? How do you end up with all these 10 sefirot, these 10 attributes of the divine When you just have the one pure oneness, how does that happen? So there has to be a space made for that. The philosophical question is, how do you have something like the physical world if you believe in a full omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God? What happened, how did that happen? How do you have all this multiplicity Coming from this oneness And the answer is That you had that symptom God himself created This space For there to be another This brings up other philosophical questions And those other philosophical questions are What is this empty space? What's in it? If it doesn't have God there Then what is there? Well, if you say nothing, well, what is that nothing? There's no divine. So when you have no divine, what do you have? You have something else. And now the question is, well, now you have two powers. Let's say the nothingness isn't a power, but it's still something. It's nothing, but it's really something because if God isn't there and there's an empty space, now there's a place without God. And if you have a place without God, God is here and not there. The other philosophical question here is if god is everything god is all powerful etc etc then you have a universe and you have people which are not god that in some sense limits god because what you're saying is this is god and that isn't god so now that's something which god is not so there's something which isn't god which god can't be and that puts a limitation on god because god can't be that thing so That is a philosophical question. Does the Tsimtsun come to answer that question as well? Or does it just make that question even stronger? Or does it try to say in a sense that, well, if God creates this room for other, then that's okay. Because the fact this room for the other would not exist unless God allowed for that place to be, which is other than God. So if God creates that room for another, then that's not really a limitation on God because it's God creating a limitation. So it's not something else limiting God, but God creating that limitation. So, in a sense, that Simpson answers that philosophical question. Again, the philosophical question would be if you have other, that limits God because God can't be that other. So now you have humans, you have a physical universe which is not God. And if it's not God, then God is here and not there. In other words, God isn't that physical thing. Well, the answer would be, well, since God created that other and created that room for that other, allowed for that other to exist, and it wouldn't exist without God, therefore, it's God limiting himself. And God limiting himself is not a limitation because if God couldn't limit himself, then that would be a limitation. The fact that he can limit himself, that shows that he's unlimited because he can even do something which can limit himself, and therefore... There is no limitation there. Could be that Simpson is answering that philosophical question as well. God created a place which limits him. And how did that happen? Because God can do that because God's unlimited can also create something within himself which limits himself. It's a little bit of mental gymnastics, but that could be part of the philosophical answer to this question of how can we have a physical universe which seems to contradict the fact that God is unlimited. So underlying the textual question, which is how the Arizah through Rabbi Chaim Vital frames the Tzimtzum, is an answer to philosophical questions about how did all this come into being when you have an unlimited God. In addition, in the tradition of the Kabbalistic thought process, there are questions related to how to think about this Tzimtzum and whether this Tzimtzum was a literal Tzimtzum, what would be called Tzimtzum Kibshutai, that it's literally happened, that this is now empty and devoid of God, or whether Tzimtzum Loi Kibshutai, or whether it's not literal explanation, that actually it's not totally void of God, but rather it was done in a way in which it doesn't mean that God actually is no longer there. It doesn't mean there's a place which is totally devoid of God. Actually, God is there. It's just that he's done in a way in which it seems like he's not there. So which one is it? And I, when I was studying this originally, 25 years ago, as a student of the Chabad School of Hasidic Thought, which a lot of that is based on Lurianic Kabbalah. They claimed that the idea that this is not a literal contraction, that doesn't mean that God totally removed himself from this empty circle, this what's called Mokom Khala, this empty space. But rather, it just seemed like he removed himself. And they said that Rabbi Shnir Zaman of the Adi, who was the first Chabad Rebbe, was the one who explained for the first time that this wasn't a literal tzimtzum. When one looks at the time it actually seems that it could go both ways. But Rabbi Shneel, Zaman explained that this wasn't an actual tzimtzum. This wasn't a literal, that God removed himself entirely. And there were others who said, no, it meant that he actually removed himself, totally removed himself, and there was no God there. And there are arguments for why one would want this or that, philosophically. So if one says that God didn't totally remove himself, then you're limiting God in a sense by saying he can't totally remove himself. If you say that he did totally remove himself, then you're saying there's a place without God. That there's no God here at all. That there's a place which is totally devoid of God. Which is, again, problematic. Whichever way you look at it, it is potentially problematic. What we're going to get into next time is conceptually, what is this symptom? So we're going to get into deeper an understanding of explaining what is the tsum, What actually happened here? And try to give analogies to explain it of what actually took place here, because right now it feels like a very physical thing. There was light there, there was a contraction of the light, removal of the light and light coming back in. It feels very like a very physical thing all to do with light. So you can imagine it in your mind, and we can start showing things with our, with our hands to say that there was light here, and now move the light aside, etc. But there are more subtle ways of explaining it, which make it feel less physical. And we're going to get into the details next time of what the more subtle ways of explaining its symptom are, and what the, some of the difficulties with those explanations are so that we can get a more abstract idea of what the Tzimtzum is. And part of that is going to be around explaining this idea and elaborating on this idea of whether symptom is kipshuta, not kipshuta, whether it was a literal contraction of light or not a literal contraction of light, and how to think about all of that. But that's going to be next time. Meanwhile, this time, I just wanted to give an introduction to the idea of the Tzimtzum and how it's framed in the writings of the Ariza through Rabbi Chaim Vital and also to explain a little bit about some of the philosophical underpinnings of the Tzimtzum and then next week we can get into deeper into what the Tzimtzum actually is from a more abstract perspective. But meanwhile, this has been Levi Brackman with Truths, Jewish Wisdom Today. Thank you so much for joining and until next time.